Hello, Little Ridge Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about Easter time, and I mean that in two ways. One, when do we celebrate Easter in terms of the time of year? And two, when do we celebrate Easter in terms of the time of day? And I'm talking specifically about the Easter vigil at that point. But the church has a lot to say about this, and it's really cool to see it unfold in this conversation that I have with Dennis and Chris. Also, I wanted to let you know that we created a fun little quiz to see if you're listening to this podcast and retaining any type of information. We created a quiz at www.liturgyquiz.com. Yes, that's a real website. We created it. Go there, take the quiz, see if you can get 10 out of 10 on that quiz. It's been really great. We've seen about 3,000 people take this already, so... Go there, www.liturgyquiz.com, and without further ado, episode 36 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. I have a very particular set of skills, and I will find you, and I will catechize you. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, what, what are we actually talking about? Wouldn't you like to know? Chris, let's just start talking and leave Jesse in the dark. Have we started yet? We have. Why do we ask this every week? We have started. Because because our conversations are so great. I don't know when. I'd like to keep you guessing. Okay. We're talking about the 14th of Toyota. 14th of Nissan. Nissan. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, Ultima. Maxima. I think it's spelled differently. And and the vehicle is. Nissan has two S's. Yeah. This one, which is the month. N I S A N. The lunar month is N I S A N. What does this have to do with liturgy? Something about the full moon werewolves. You kind of look something like with it. this beard you have. Yeah. I was suggesting before that uh, I wasn't suggesting. I was flat out saying, and this is the this is the truth. This is not hyperbole here. Not your usual the, lack of faith. Right, that's right. The most frequently asked question in the diocesan office for sacred worship is. Can you eat me on St. Patrick's Day? Why during Lent? do we pay your salary? Yeah, <laughs> for how little work you do. You're both right. Uh, <laughs> th- those are common questions, but uh, no, the the most common one is what's the earliest time we can begin the Easter vigil? Why? Why? Why do people want to know that? People want to go home and go to bed because yeah, it's supposed to be really. It's supposed to be late. It's supposed to uh, be in darkness. The whole vigil is supposed to take place in darkness. So it's not to be. Uh, the usual time of the Saturday evening mass at 5 or 5.30, something like that. There was a warning from the Holy See some years ago that says reprehensible are those occasions where the Easter vigil begins at the normal time of the mass of anticipation. Wow. So, you know, to make your, uh, you know, make your triduum schedule, you need to know how, how early this can start. Because if it goes to, and Easter vigil's late, so if, let's say you start the uh, Easter vigil too late in the night, he gets over it midnight or something like that. Oh, I, that be... I thought you meant like what's the earliest date it can be. Well, that's another know. one. Both, these are oh, both okay. related questions because ah, when it comes okay. to the Easter Vigil, there's great concern that the church has that her time says Paschal Mystery Time. 
and doesn't say something else. Are you trying to say that the external sign should conform to invisible spiritual realities? That is, that you is are exactly such a tyrant. No, I can't no, believe it. Same old boring thing. I know. But uh, no, it's not boring because uh, I mean, this is what uh, you get down to it. This is what Jesus himself is, right? He's the image of the invisible father. And to see him is to see God the father. And so he himself is described as being a kind of external sacrament of an invisible reality, which is God the father. But it, uh, even time as a sacramental element about it. I mean, it's easy to consider like candles or altars or windows or music or words or ministers or vestments. As, which we have here on the have. podcast. Yeah. Which are sacramental because you can see all of those and you can, they're, they're easily detectable, but time is not so detectable. I mean, you can't see it or smell it or taste it or anything, but still time is one I've, of, Oh, not the spice time because <laughs> I can definitely taste that. One time I had too much time on my hands I had to wash them. Too much time. This, this is taking up too much time. Let's, let's edit that out. <laughs> so uh, the church is concerned that even time, even though it's not uh, sensible like it is uh, in other ways, that it, did, that it reveals unseen realities. And so one of these instances is which time of day does the Easter Vigil start? Or related to that, what time of year does the Paschal Mystery take place? Okay, those are the questions. What are the answers? <laughs> what are the answers? Which one do you want to take first? Let's go with the time of day. Time of day. All right. I had. I was. I used to go to a sort of high church church, and they tried to time it so that the Gloria would ring at exactly midnight on the Easter nice. vigil. That was that was heralding in Easter, and the lights would come on, and they'd ring bells, and things are kind of not supposed to do. I know, but they timed it perfectly to be. Wait, what are you not supposed to do? I don't know. You're not, suppo- you're not supposed to turn the lights on when the Gloria rings. They're supposed to be turned on once the Paschal candle is put into the stand. This is a very common <laughs> practice. It, oh, it's... okay. Wow. But it was dramatic and really cool. Yeah. You know, illicit, but cool. <laughs> That's going to be my next podcast. <laughs> illicit, but, but cool. cool. Got it. Illicit, but cool. Well, when it comes to the Triduum, there's all sorts of time regulations uh, for the liturgy. So, for example, the uh, Mass of the Lord's Supper takes place in the evening. When you get to Good Friday, you know what the suggested time for uh, the Good Friday liturgy is? 3 p.m.? Right, Jesse. 3 p.m. Can I I tell you why I think that is? Because Christ died at 3 p.m.? That's right. So you see how the external sign at 3 o'clock is a revealer of the internal reality, which is the dying of Christ. Uh, It will give you the option so you can celebrate as early as noon, but not before that. Wow. And then when you get to the Easter Vigil, the whole thing, as we said before, is to take place uh, in darkness. So it's not supposed to begin until after sunsets. And so what, what you end up doing is uh, go to the old Farmer's Almanac or some uh, website to find out when sunset is. And uh, they recommend you add 45 minutes onto that so that the beginning of the Easter Vigil begins in darkness. I mean, what are you doing at the beginning? But you're, you're, you're blessing the new fire and praying that it burns away the darkness of sin and ignorance and the rest. And it just loses some of its impact when it's, you can still see the sun going down. Right, and the priest goes down the aisle singing, Christ our light, and that's the only light in the church. That's really an yeah. impressive thing. But of course, the priest doesn't do that. The, the, the deacon does that. What the kind of liturgies that. do you go oh, to, Dennis? No, this, just, this, oh, is, okay. this is actually a change. So this is, I mean, there's lots of questions about the, the triduum, and especially when, you, when the missile changes so much. Yeah, but it changed, Jesse, with the, the, the hook. There's some great <laughs> symbolism, though, with the, the beginning of the Paschal um, Vigil. It says that the first thing into the church is the incense, and the second thing into the church is the paschal candle carried by the deacon. But if the deacon can't do it, then the, still the priest can't do it. A layperson does it. Third into the church is 
the priest. Uh, and after the priest is the people. And it seems that this is a, uh, I hope this is not too uh, uh, dramatic or, or made up, but it seems like it's re-echoing that pillar of fire, the incense, excuse me, the pillar of cloud, which is the incense, the pillar of fire, which is the candle, Moses, now in the person of the priest, the Israelites in the person of the new people of God. And so it's kind of a sacramental fulfillment of these uh, earlier types. Wow. Very rarely do I say that is so cool when, I hear, when I hear you talk. See, this wow, is, that this is, is so cool. This is cool and licit. Whoa. <laughs> so, There's nothing cooler than licit. But uh, it, to your point, though, you're right. I, if you don't have the darkness then go, going into the, to the church, which is, has lights on or there's lights coming through the window and you're singing Christ our light, just doesn't signify or symbolize or sacramentalize in the same way. So in this instance, we have the church being very concerned about the time of day that the liturgy begins because time itself can either reveal, or if we do it illicitly, not reveal, uh, the mystery uh, which Christ is. So it's very important that uh, the liturgy of Easter Vigil starts uh, in darkness. So we have all these rules and not rules and regulations, but guidance from the church on the time to start things. Is there anything else in the Easter vigil that um, that we that we get from just our natural experience? So you're talking about light or starting in darkness, going into light, because I remember in a couple podcasts ago, you, you talked about how everything at the vigil is new, new candle, new water, new altar cloths. Uh, freshly washed, I think, or you don't have to buy new altar cloths every year, right? That's right. Okay, so like, what, what do you need to buy a new Paschal candle every year, even yeah. though it costs 160 bucks and you only yeah. burned an inch? Yeah, of you it. cannot yeah. party like it's 1999. You have to party like it's 2017, <laughs> like everybody right. else. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Newness is, uh, I think, is the good key word. And so, um, I mean, what happens? Well, when, when, when? Let's talk about the time of the year. When does the Easter vigil take place in the time of year? How does the church figure that out? Because uh, it's, it's a, not like Christmas. It's not just, you know, the 25th of March every single year. It's a it's lunar. Moving around. It's a lunar. Um, uh, it's based on the lunar calendar. Is that correct? Okay, you're partly right because the moon has something to, uh, to say about it. But what else uh, takes place? Is it just the full moon when? Uh, is the first. So Lent starts the. No. Oh, my gosh. There's something about the first full moon after Christmas. No, not after Christmas, but. After the spring, uh, equinox. yeah, the equinox, equinox. Okay. right? Where a ta- where uh, daylight, so it's equinoctes, I suppose, is what it is. So day and night are equal, right? Um, so uh, the spring equinox. So the, how how they determine Easter is the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. That is a really complicated formula, <laughs> but it didn't come from nowhere, right? <laughs> I'd like to see that in an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. Well, they didn't have Excel spreadsheets back when oh, they okay. determined this. Do you remember when uh, this happened? When they determined it? It's a long time ago. It was uh, the Council of Nicaea, okay. which was uh, back in, what, 325? And, and did John the Baptist have something to do with this? Wasn't? Yeah, he did, actually. Right, but hold, hold that thought for okay. just a minute. So at the, at the time of uh, in Nicaea, there was a couple of groups that were mostly somewhere in Syria, and this was like uh, uh, Polycarp, St. Polycarp, and then there was uh, uh, the Latin Rite Pope, uh, and they were having a disagreement about when Easter should start. Some wanted 
Easter to always be on 14 Nissan, very much like we have Christmas on 25 December, right? And these uh, fellows were called Corto Decimans, mm-hmm. which I suppose... What do we think of those guys? The, the four, well, there's not too many of them around no. anymore. Well, then so. doesn't matter what we think about them. <laughs> so we know, we know who won this uh, debate. But they were concerned about the, the, the full moon. So 14 Nissan, this is a, Nissan is a lunar uh, calendar, and so it runs, what, 28 ish uh, days uh, according to the cycles of the moon and so the new moon was the first day and that means there's no moon but at the full moon this was on the 14th of the month so this is 14 nisan and the quarter decimans wanted easter always to be on 14 nisan the other group said well that makes some sense but we jesus rose on the first day the eighth day there's symbolism there that we need to maintain and if you always went with 14 nissan it may or may not be in fact most cases it will not be on a sunday on a sunday so they were interested in the sunday symbolism i see the dilemma yeah so what they did is they tried to incorporate both of them and they came up with this formula ratified i gather at the council of uh, nicaea in 325 that easter will be on the first sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox best of both worlds right? that's right so everybody was best happy. best of both moons yeah, or just the one moon. <laughs> just one moon. But uh, hold the moon thought. Let's go back to the John the Baptist question. Mm-hmm. All right, so, I mean, what, what is the symbolism of this springtime uh, new moon and spring equinox and all of the rest? Well, the days are getting longer. The days are getting longer. Life is, at least in the northern hemisphere, life is springing up again. Right, right. When we, when we talk about John the Baptist, you know, well, maybe we should back up even farther. In the Gospel of Luke, uh, an angel is sent to uh, Mary in Nazareth. And so this is, we, we mark this, uh, this is the Annunciation, which we celebrate on the 25th of March. Mm-hmm. And what's one of the things that uh, the angel says to Mary? Uh, that her cousin is with child. Okay, and how with child? <laughs> how uh, far along is she? She's now in her oh. sixth month? Sixth month, right? Oh, wow. So that means the conception of John the Baptist took place about six months before March 25th, which would be September 25th. 25th. Yeah. Uh, strictly speaking, in the in the Eastern churches and many of their calendars, they have a feast day called the Conception of John the Baptist, and it's on September 23rd. Really, is when it is. We don't have this in the in the Roman rite. Okay. So, if John the Baptist is uh, conceived on 23rd of September, when's he born? When's his birthday? When's the Nativity of John the Baptist? November, when? November, December, January, February, March, April, May, You got to go backwards. June. June. June 25th. June 24th. June 24th, 24th. In, oh. even in our calendar, is the birth of John the Baptist. This is a solemnity. Right? And then Jesus, of course, nine months after March 25th is yeah. December 25th. So what you have in these four dates, March 25, June 24, September 23, and December 25th, is you basically have the spring equinox, the summer solstice, which is the, the longest, longest day, longest day. day. Yeah. you have the autumnal equinox, and you have the winter solstice. I love all a good mar- autumnal equinox, <laughs> all, don't you? All marking these events. But what is John the Baptist? I mean, if you could quote a line from John the Baptist, what would it be? He, I must decrease, decrease. so that he might increase. Right, and he is born on the day when the sun starts to Dude. decrease oh, wow. and to make way for Christ who comes into the world at the it shortest day of the year and after. starts to increase. Yeah, yeah. Right. Until, so it's almost like Christ the light comes into the world at Christmas, 
dim and small and is starting to do battle with the darkness that we're going to burn away at uh, Easter. And it's not until the spring equinox when the light and the sun becomes victorious over oh, darkness. Because even though it's getting longer, the night's still longer than the day until right. the equinox, and then the day starts getting longer than the night. Right, right. So the darkness is conquered. Man. And so Easter, so you see, I mean, March 25th or thereabouts just says something that, you know, August 4th can't. That what this means for Easter then, right, is uh, so the, the spring equinox, uh, I, apparently it, uh, I'm just a liturgist, not uh, an, an astronomer, uh, is generally, what, March 20th or 21st or 22nd, right? And so if it were the 20th and the next day were a full moon and the next day after that was a Sunday, the earliest day that Easter could ever be would be like March 22nd. The latest day it could possibly be, you know, if you just missed out on the full moon cycle or you just missed out on the Sundays about April 25th. And so there's a window in there where Easter can be celebrated throughout the course of the year from generally March 22nd all the way to April 25th. And this year, right, so what do we say? That, oh, Lent's starting late this year. Uh, Easter's late this year because Easter itself is I on I always say April. that it feels like it's starting early, though. <laughs> is uh, April 15th is the Easter vigil, right? Now, Passover has something to do with this, right? Yeah, and so this is great. So we've looked at some events in the life of Christ. We've looked at some things that happen in the world, in, in the world of nature. Maybe let's just hit one more before we go to uh, the, the Passover, the chosen people. This is an observation from Cardinal Ratzinger in his uh, book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, uh, where he talks about that springtime constellation. So if you happen to be born on March 25th, what would your sign be? Aries. Aries, which is the ram. ram. Which is the oh, yeah, ram, I think we right? talked about this. Did we talk this? Yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah. keep going. Yeah, so well, what he says is that, uh, you know, Cardinal Ratzker says, look, even the stars are kind of twinkling out, Lamb of God, Lamb of God, Lamb of God. The stars even know what's happening. The co- all of the cosmos knows. The moon, the moon is full on uh, 14 Nisan, and this lunatic uh, moon is going to lose its power. Uh, on 15 Nissan, and the day it's going to start to uh, to wane away. So the stars, the moon, the sun, the earth, all of the cosmos is aligning itself to mark this Paschal event. And if we just picked any old day, we would miss all of that stuff. Yeah, February 18th can't do that, or uh, August 4th, or August 4th. Is that your birthday, Jesse? No, 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 no. <laughs> But March 25th does. But now, this is relative, too, as, as you suggest, Dennis, to the, uh, to the history of the chosen people as well. Um, you know, about this, uh, this Aries. Uh, this, too, I, I believe, is in the spirit of the liturgy. Um, there's the story, of course, which we read it, uh, at the vigil, where Abraham takes his son, his only son whom he loves, uh, to sacrifice Isaac. him. Right. And do you remember some of the details of oh, that yeah. story? Oh, yeah. So um, obviously he doesn't end up going through with it because they, uh, God sends an back angel up, Back up a little but bit. The back up. But the sun is carrying the wood up the, there. Yeah, right? the sun is carrying the wood. Okay. I actually learned this from Scott Hahn. The sun is carrying the wood. I think he got it from the liturgy guys. But then... Um, <laughs> like most of his but, commentary. And, uh, and, and they didn't end up sacrificing him. They had to sacrifice a, a ram yeah, with the its ram. horns caught... In a in the thorn thicket. bush, yeah, the, almost the, the 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 lamb caught on the tree or in the tree, or with the crown of thorns. Oh, nice! Yeah, I don't remember that one. That's man, good. I'm so glad when I can teach you something, Chris. <laughs> the 
I'll forget it though. You have to remind <laughs> me again. But even before, you know, how does Isaac get to Mount Moriah? They got to climb a hill. But even to get there, he rides on a on a on a mule. Oh, I, and, I don't remember that. Part. And Mount Moriah is uh, what the where Jerusalem will eventually be. Yeah, and it's the father who places the wood of the sacrifice on the shoulders of the son who takes it up. Just like Christ uh, carrying the cross the later on. Yeah. What, yeah, ex- all of this, exactly. These are all prefigurements of what will actually happen with Christ. But um, it's in the spirit of the liturgy where Cardinal Ratzinger says, the chosen people believed that this event, what's called the binding of Isaac or the sacrificial event, that too took place on 14 Nisan. On 14 Nisan. But the chosen people have other cele- uh, celebrations at this time, too. There was the feast of uh, Passover, where the, uh, the angel of God passed over the houses of the Israelites that were marked with the blood of the lamb. So they were saved from destruction, which becomes a notion of Christ rescuing us. Mm-hmm. But wasn't the date of Passover based on the same... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It it takes place at the same time of year. Uh, And the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which coincides with this, what the chosen people had to to eat the meal in haste. There was no time to let bread rise, and so they ate their bread without its leaven because they were eating uh, uh, in a hurry. Yeah, it was the yeast they could do. (laughs) It's the yeast yeast they they couldn't couldn't do. Oh, right, yeah, Yeah. sorry. Yeah, Yeah, so uh, these events, too, take place uh, with with with, uh, chosen people. But even before before that, if we can go to uh, Dennis, you've been Jesse, you have too. You've been to our place up in Wisconsin. But if you were to come up there for uh, for Easter time, what are some of the things you you might see besides I mud? Try to get there when the lambs are born. Last last Easter, the b- lambs were being born on the day of Easter. That's that's right. Yeah. So the, the lambs, uh, I mean, just on a farm, any any farm around the country uh, or outside of the country, the lambs themselves are born. Uh, around in, in the oh, you don't of the plan year. this out. You don't. I guess nature has its ways. Really? I mean, yeah. wow, that's a, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it is, and it delicious. Is. <laughs> God knew what he was doing. And also, uh, what's happening at this time is the uh, uh, the harvest of the wheat and the barley. Right. So these are um, you're in corn country here in Illinois, but you get farther right. out west and you get uh, for more example, more corn you country. More corn. <laughs> but you also have uh, wheat, winter wheat, winter wheat. That's right. So what happens with winter wheat or winter crops like wheat or barley is they are sown in the fall of the year and they start to grow, and then uh, I guess due to temperature and daylight, they stop growing and they go dormant and they just rest there, they sit there idly over the course of the winter. But then when the daylight increases and the warmth increases, they start to grow again until they are fully ripe, which uh, at least in the in the Promised Land was about the time of 14 Nisan, or around March 25th. And so this pattern. Day, yeah, yeah, there's a big pattern around uh, March 25th that just simply does not exist at any other time of the year. Wow, I, I didn't even know winter wheat was a thing. I, that's impressive. You thought that was a kind of beer, didn't you? Well, yeah, actually. Winter wheat that's, ale. <laughs> that's exactly moon. what I thought. I had no idea. Um, I know, I mean, because Christ uses the image of wheat, and, and we see it, that image a lot in the Bible, and um, the, the chaff floating away when you're trying to separate the chaff from the wheat. Mm. Um, it's just, uh, I, I love that we use these earthly images and these earthly and cos- cosmos um, things of the cosmos to uh, lead us to understand liturgy better. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. There's there's a reason why cult and agriculture are are related, 
and that uh, you know from from the dawn of history these uh, historians of religion and anthropologists and anthropologists of religion say that, that there's always an association with food and worship they belong together it's uh, my kind of yeah that's my kind of literature food and worship <laughs> so well, that's what a feast is. I mean, the feast has a necessary extravagance, not only in ornament and decoration of yourself and your buildings and your way you talk and sing and act and dress, but also how you eat. That's how you know. Yeah, well, even someone, we, we talk occasionally, we want to talk about this uh, guy a lot more, is Virgil Michael, who's kind of the father of the American liturgical movement uh, in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, uh, a Benedictine monk from uh, Collegeville. And really, he brought back these great thoughts, these great ideas of liturgical thinking from uh, Europe, bring them back to the United States. But one of the other things that Virgil Michael was, was known for was helping to establish the National Catholic Rural Life Conference, because he saw... You know, especially of the the, the, the industrialization that's happening uh, in the United States in the teens and in the twenties, uh, that we were we were losing our roots in a certain real sense, literally. Yeah, yeah. And to uh, even gives this story about you know, this must have been in Minneapolis or St. Paul. They had to parade a, a cow through the streets of the city during one of the parades because people didn't even know what a cow looked like anymore. They were losing their roots. And so part of the liturgical renewal, at least in the United States, was part of an agricultural renewal as well because these two things work so well together. Be right, this liturgical calendar that we follow and Jesse, you you said they were rules and rubrics and laws and legislation, which which they are. Mm-hmm. But um, they're not just that. They're trying to safeguard and convey uh, very deep, very rich, very beautiful theological realities. And so, you know, the the rules and the rubrics of the church's time management, time of day, time of year, time of the week, are all meant to uh, to make Christ a present to us. That is a long answer to someone who calls up in your office to say, Never hey, call Chris in his office with a simple question. <laughs> is that how you only answer like one question a day? We're just like, I don't really feel like doing some work today, so I'm just going to give them the long answer. Well, we like to be thorough in the uh, in But you know, it is so office. complicated. The church started having this proclamation at the date of Easter, right? Say something about that. Instead oh, of letting people compute it themselves, there was actually a day. Oh yeah, this is uh, this is at uh, the piece to the the piece to the epiphany, the, the, <laughs> the feast of, of the epiphany, epiphany which is also you didn't a, have to continue a, saying a the thing day. wrong. We wouldn't have noticed. Is <laughs> is itself a difficult day to figure out because we we end up transferring it. But there's a proclamation of the various uh, key feasts throughout the year. This uh, 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 proclamation at Epiphany, and it you know the, the center of the proclamation. Uh, the this place, happens every year, or it's it's an optional thing, but it's a it's a helpful, a pastorally helpful thing to do is is to announce it. The center of these all of these dates they take their bearing from the Paschal Mystery of Christ, which is celebrated on the first Sunday after the first full moon after the uh, spring equinox. And it's actually pretty cool if the the guy or whoever the singing it comes out and proclaims the day of Easter will be blah 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 on this mm-hmm. day after this feast and all that, and it's. Really telling the world, not just a little. It's not just a little circular saying, "Hey, by the way, mark your calendar." It's a it's a proclamation of this date to, to look forward to in a liturgical way. Yeah, is there a lot of fanfare that goes with that, like trumpets, like? No, there could be, but most people don't do it. Oh, okay. I've never even heard that, that that existed, but I think that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that happens at the local parish level. Yeah, in the parish. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah it's. Uh, I can't remember. It's either right before, or right after the gospel. I think. And wasn't there, um, I don't remember this right, but wasn't there a pope that adjusted the calendar 
to there's like a uh, there's even this place in I think Rome or somewhere where the the sun comes in and they I guess they had calculated uh, it was it had to do with leap year or something like that. Yeah, well, um, part of the problem. Uh, so what? The, the Julius Caesar uh, reformed the calendar. What this is like forty five or fifty BC, and he set the the, the cycle at three hundred sixty five days and six hours, a quarter quarter right. of a day, right? But apparently it's more like uh, 365 days, five hours, and 49 minutes. Yeah, what a loser. He got yeah, it wrong. He got it wrong. So that 11 uh, minutes a year doesn't seem like a lot, but over the course of a century that adds up to about a day. So by the time we get to Gregory, one of the Gregories, mm-hmm. seventh? 12th, Was he great or not? No, no, no. Okay, he may so. have been. He's not the Gregory the Great. <laughs> Gregory but, the mediocre. <laughs> yeah, so he has to reform the calendar in, I don't know, the 1580s or something like that because the uh, the summer solstice, which should be around June what, 22nd, was on like June 10th. Yeah. So the calendar was was way off. The man-made calendar and the cosmic calendar were not matching up. So the Gregorian reform of the calendar took place under under this pope. But the I guess the odd thing is, is, in the 16th century, not everybody wanted to listen to papal reforms. Right. For example. People don't even want to do that now. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but like the, uh, the Protestant reformers or the Orthodox, they weren't going to, to take this adjustment. So for a long time, there was a very Yeah, but, but by what you're saying, I mean, it's important that we make that adjustment because these days mean things. Uh, not just the days themselves, but relative to... What, what they mean in our church history, but then also what they mean relative to the cosmos itself and yeah. and the moon and the sun and the stars. So, yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, you know, in retrospect. And so I never thought, I never gave any thought to why Easter is when it is or why we do these things. But um, as I come to learn more about, you know, this type of stuff through this podcast, it's obvious that there's a lot of thought and detail uh, that goes into this. And it's just like, Dennis, you say that, you know, words mean things, things mean things, you know. Time mean things. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, one other adjustment is that the Easter vigil used to be early in the morning. Oh, yeah, that's Saturday, a great point Until too. 1951. From, 15, well, from the 12th century to 1951, the Easter vigil was in the morning. It slowly became more and more anticipated, and finally Pius the 12th in the 50s redid the whole Holy Week. But it week. wasn't called a vigil. It was, just it was called the Easter vigil, except it was... Eight o'clock in the morning. Eight o'clock, o'clock in the and morning. And that was on Sunday or Saturday? Saturday, Saturday morning. So oh, wow. the vigil for Easter was a whole day ahead, and there was some argument that maybe they thought it would, the whole feast had to be anticipated with the whole day. But then finally someone said, hey, this is reform of the liturgy. That's not just arbitrary liturgists making up stuff. They're saying, if this is the night watch where light is coming into the darkness, let's have light come into the darkness. And there's something to be said about uh, a little more time between Good Friday and the Easter vigil and being able to take that and instead of just the first moment you possibly can do it, to have that moment where Jesus is in the tomb rather than just going like, oh, he died, and then the next day, like, boom. Oh. Well, that's true. I mean, but for all of these reasons that you're mentioning, I mean, the church's clock was not symbolizing what it was meant to symbolize, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's the morning uh, daylight or the, you know, the kind of the absence of the, the, the sadness uh, the, the widowhood of the church on uh, on uh, Holy Saturday. Yet none of these things could be symbolized, symbolized or sacramentalized with kind of the former liturgical clock, and so the people couldn't encounter them. Well, I, we're on the ball now. Yeah, that's that's the good thing is that we know what we're doing now. 
Um, and I think we got both those questions answered, not uh, you know explicitly, or uh, but we went around and we we took the whole thing and we we <laughs> we answered both of them. Uh, but uh, what? I thought we answered them explicitly and directly. Well, we didn't say like, okay, that one is answered. Now let's answer this one. But, but we got to both answers in the same explanation. So, I'm glad you think so. <laughs> You're both lunatics. It's all oh, I have to say. Wah, 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 wah. man, Nissan Altima, nice. All right. Well, I think it's time to answer a question from one of our listeners in a roundabout way. Amen. Hey, Lady Guy listeners, this is your host, Jesse Weiler. And before we get into this week's email question, I wanted to quickly remind you about our Young Adult Liturgy Conference coming up in April 2017. If you're a young adult and you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, both Dennis and Chris will be speaking at this Young Adult Liturgy Conference in Chicago. So to learn more about that, go to www.betransfigured.com. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, this week we have a question. It's actually not one question from one particular person, but it's a series of questions that we've been getting from a lot of our listeners, and that is, what is the Liturgical Institute? You keep talking about it on your podcast. Um, well, basically, this podcast is a product of the Liturgical Institute. It's an it's initiative of ours to help uh, people understand the liturgy, uh, primarily myself, uh, to understand the liturgy, but... Uh, Dennis, uh, you are actually a, a full-time faculty member at the Liturgical Institute. Do you want to maybe take a shot at explaining who we are, what we do? Well, sure. Primarily, we are a place for graduate education in theology and uh, sacramental theology and liturgical theology. Cardinal George founded the Institute in the year 2000. He was Archbishop of Chicago at the time. And he thought that there was a, a lot of confusion about the nature of liturgy because it was kind of attached to other branches of study, like sociology or pastoral theology, and it couldn't answer certain questions about the nature of things. You know, I talk about ontology all the time, the questions of the nature of things. Well, what's the nature of the liturgy, and how do you find out? And he had the great insight that the nature of the liturgy is given to us by the church, and you primarily know what it is by studying the liturgical books. So we're a rights-based program. We have two master's degrees, Master of Arts in Liturgy. What does that mean, a rights-based program? That the rights of the church, so the books, the ritual books that the church gives us, are the basis for how we figure out what liturgy is about. It's kind of a, I like to think of it as a great books program. And the books in question are the, the ritual missile. books themselves. That's right, where you dedication start. of a church. And those books are great. They are. They're great. Yeah. And so people can come here and get a master's degree in liturgical studies or in liturgy or a license in sacred theology or even a doctorate in sacred theology. Those are two ecclesiastical degrees accredited by the Congregation for Education of the Holy See. So you can come to Mundelein, Illinois and get a degree accredited by the Vatican. Which is awesome, by the way. 
All right, so that's one thing is it's educational programs. What, uh, what else does the Institute do? Well, we publish a line of books called Hill and Brand Books. This is what Kevin does. The famous Kevin that yes. we talk about all the time is the editor and founder, and I think there are 40-something titles now. A really great contribution to the field of the study of liturgy that a lot of other publishers are not uh, tackling some of these same topics. Okay, and these uh, are yeah. named after uh, Monsignor Reynolds Hillenbrand, who was one time uh, rector of, uh, was it was it called Mundelein Seminary back Mundelein then? Mundelein Seminary, yeah. Okay. And a pastor in the archdiocese. Right, and a friend of Virgil Michael. So he was right. uh, in, in the, the thick of things in the liturgical renewal movement. And then we had a, another sort of branch, which is public events. So we have conferences um, sponsored either on our campus or in other places. And then we've kind of added lately this fourth branch, which is social media. So the kind of thing that we're doing now, the liturgy guys or that videos. That seems like a cool branch. Can we talk more about that branch? This hey. is the branch of Jesse. Well, let's... <laughs> The root of Jesse, Jesse, the tree of Jesse, the branch of Jesse. That See, makes so much sense. This started out as a tree of Jesse, of a branch. Jesse's turning it into a tree, little by mm-hmm. little. But, but the conferences. What are some of the examples? The conferences we do are. Well, we have one, one coming up this week. Um, uh, Chris, you are working with Anthony Lillis, Doctor Anthony Lillis, mm, mm-hmm. and um, it's an annual conference that we do about the Triduum. This is year ten, right? Might be. It seems like it's been going on a long so time. We've been doing that a decade. But yeah. then we also have academic lectures, uh, the Hill and Brand lectures, uh, which we do biannually, twice a year. Um, and then also new initiatives. We're doing a young adult liturgy conference in Chicago, uh, April 22nd. Dennis and Chris, you're both going to speak there. The rector of the seminary, uh, Father Karchi, is going to speak there. And then an alumna of the Liturgical Institute, Alexis Katarna, who is at uh, St. Mary's Seminary in Houston. Houston, music yeah. director there, right. And so she will be uh, giving a presentation on music at the conference. So that's April 22nd, um, the, the Saturday after Easter. So a number of conferences. But even beyond that, uh, you don't necessarily have to come to Chicago to our conferences or to our classes here. Uh, but you can also get online content, which is really why this podcast exists. Um, that and because I want to learn more about the liturgy. And so selfishly, I just get these guys together to record our conversations. Um, but then we also have uh, video resources as well. We have a lecture podcast I don't think we've ever mentioned. So if you just type in Liturgical Institute Podcast, um, it will come up on Podbean. It's also on our website, liturgicalinstitute.org. Um, all of our lectures, there's lectures by Scott Hahn, uh, Bishop Barron has a lecture on there. We just published one um, called Drinking with the Saints uh, with uh, Dr. Foley, which is really entertaining. And Brant Petrie Brant and Petrie. Archbishop Sarton. So lots of really free, great content there. And then also we have a new uh, film series called Elements of the Catholic Mass. That's 31 episodes, really short uh, two to five minutes, different uh, parts of the Mass, and that's hosted by uh, Father Douglas Martis, who is the former director of the Institute. Really great series, and what's great about that is it's very easy to understand um, because some of the stuff can get pretty heavy. Even we get a little heavy here on this podcast. So those are things you can check out. But the number one unusual thing about our program is we actually pray the liturgy. We do. Morning prayer and evening prayer is sung five days a week and mass five days a week with all of our students. And the idea is that you can't really talk about the liturgy without being a liturgist. That's one who prays the liturgy. And you can have it at arm's length and you know be an atheist who studies liturgy, but we don't want that. We want people who pray, who have the uh, gifts and the Christ life 
coming to them. And then from that point of view, they study. And then the next, then they study a collect, say, and then they go to mass and that collect comes up. They can pray it more fully and more deeply. So the idea is transformation of the human soul through the grace of Christ by understanding the liturgy. And then Don't you have this line about studying the liturgy from the heart of the church? Is that yours? Yeah, yeah. The heart of the church just means it's the, the, the prayed liturgy, though. Too. Yeah, we just assume that fidelity to what the church teaches is part of the program. We don't even argue about that it's stuff. A given. But even then, how can we take it out to the world? How can we transform the world by making graduates who are filled with divine life? So, a lot of resources. One thing I do want to mention too: um, you, you may fit into one of those categories where you want to do a lot of the online stuff, listen to the podcast, watch videos, uh, so on and so forth. You may want to come to conferences. You may not live in the area, but a good opportunity if you want to go deeper, but you don't necessarily want a degree in liturgy. Um, I, I think a great opportunity is to come out in the summer because we have what's called our summer sessions, and it's primarily for people who want to earn a master's degree over the course of five years. But it's also kind of a, you know a short intensive. If you want to come out for one or two classes, you look up our course schedule online and you can treat it like a mini conference and you get these classes uh, every day uh, for two weeks at a time, uh, three weeks at a time, and there's uh, four total, so two three-week segments. I think that's a great opportunity uh, if, you can, if you can spare a few weeks to come out and just learn a lot about the liturgy. I think, are both of you teaching a course this summer? We're both teaching okay. this summer, yeah. And okay. if we have, at, what's what you're talking about is an at-large student, so someone who just wants to come take a class. Kind Maybe. of like auditing, right? Well, they can take it for credit or audit. And sure. so if you work in a parish or you want to teach your kids, you're a homeschool mom or you're a music director or whatever you are, and, or a priest who hasn't been back to seminary for years and years and wants to get a refresher, can't come for six weeks or five years, maybe they can come for a couple of mornings a week for three weeks. And um, those people are certainly welcome here. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm glad that we've been getting these questions from, from these uh, listeners because I, I, I don't know, I guess we never really thought to explain explain who we are or what we do. We just kind of dived in. We're the liturgy guys. And there's that liturgical <laughs> institute too. Yeah. But um, no, this is, a, this is an initiative of the liturgical institute. And um, I'm very excited to be a part of it because I, I knew none of this stuff. But it came about because Dennis and Chris were explaining to a seminarian at lunch about uh, something liturgical, some liturgical question. and I He made said, the mistake of answering a question, in front, asking a question in front of us. A noble yeah. simplicity. And with yeah. big beaming smiles and intensity of the love of yeah. God, we started attacking yeah. him with the answers. Right. And so I never asked that question. Yeah, so I said. Father Dan Steele. Oh, is it, was it him? Yakima, Washington, yes. Yeah. Oh. Well, he has no idea what he has started. So, um, so yeah, that's a that's more about the liturgical institute. If you want to ask uh, the liturgy guys uh, an actual liturgy question, or ask us something about ourselves, yeah, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Also, I want to say I've listened to some other podcasts like uh, Catholic stuff. You should know their listeners like send them stuff in the mail. Like gummy bears and whiskey and things yeah, like Chris that. Chris really likes bourbon. Yeah, quick, yeah I really Chris like cherry likes pie. bourbon. Uh, Dennis is a super taster. He likes cherry pie. He also just likes pie crust. So just, just send me pie crust. crust just oh, the pie yeah. crust, nothing in it. So if you got that lying around, that's great. I'll eat almost anything. <laughs> uh, but send us stuff in the mail. You can, eat, you can mail us at 1000 East Maple. Avenue. Avenue. Uh, Mundelein, Mund Illinois. Mundelein, Illinois. 60060. 
Uh, so that would be great. You should just send us stuff because we deserve it and we're awesome. So. L-I-T-U-R-G-Y. Now it's time for the liturgy, guys. Send us stuff in the mail right now. We deserve it because we're cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a podcast. You guys are right. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.